For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out about a free community event this weekend that supports positive mental health. A conversation with Patti Hinich, the host of Patti's Mexican Table and La Frontera on PBS. Meet three young filmmakers who dream in widescreen. And Milo, our youngest writer ever from Stories That Soar, pleads, don't go swimming at 3 a.m. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. A community event that promotes better mental health for all is happening this Saturday in Reed Park. Find out about the Arizona Palooza, its resources, fun, and food from my guest, Kat Villaverde. I'm a nurse. I work at University of Arizona Rise Health and Wellness Center as one of our health education specialists on site as the only medical staff in the building. Rise Health and Wellness Center is a behavioral health program where we teach people to manage life as somebody living with a serious mental illness. My background is working with people who have various mental illnesses or dealing with substance use disorder. Um, at our office, Rise Health and Wellness Center, a majority of the staff, which will be, we'll have our own booth at Arizona Palooza, we're organizing the event. Majority of the staff are peers, meaning we're people with lived experience of some kind of mental illness. And that's true for a lot of the people, exhibitors at the event. When we say that there's an event going on this weekend that wants to boost mental health, that sounds great, but how can it actually be done? The Arizona Palooza is unique in that it's a resource fair at its core, and we bring in over 50 exhibitors who all have some connection to mental health support, whether that's actual mental health facilities like La Frontera or healthcare facilities like El Rio or anybody who feels like they offer a mental health support to the community, and we ask them when they're exhibiting to do some kind of game or activity to get participants in the festival engaged with their booth. That's unique in that it kind of eases in the conversation about mental health because of stigma about mental health, mental illness. Sometimes just a cold discussion with strangers about it can be uncomfortable for people. But in the context of a game or an activity, you're doing something fun, you're engaging your community and other people, and those conversations can go a little smoother. Do you think that there's been a change in the way that the community at large responds to the demands of mental health and mental illness? Do you think that Tucson represents a progression or a betterment of policies regarding our mental well-being? Absolutely. I've lived in a few cities throughout the United States, and Tucson stands out as a place where mental health, mental wellness, being proactive about the community well-being really stands out as a priority. There's 50-plus vendors, exhibitors at Arizona Palooza who are involved with giving back to the community to further mental well-being and prioritize that as something that's important. What are some other elements of the event happening at Reed Park on Saturday that you want to tell people about? One of our priorities is fun. We've got a classic car show. We've got multiple bands. We have Ron Jorgensen and Friends, Our City's Finest, Oyama Elementary Folklorical Dancers, and DJ Hawk throughout the day. We've got raffle prizes from the exhibitors and local businesses. We've got a designated kid zone with games, activities, and gigantic inflatable obstacle course. 
lots of fun stuff for the family. There's also going to be free food, water bottles handed out, chips, and of course bring a refillable water bottle to keep it eco-friendly. Lots of fun stuff going on as well as lots of swag and prizes from the different exhibitor booths. And I also see here in the press release that everything is free to the public. That's great. But how is that possible? Who, who do you have sponsoring this event? Fortunately, we have many wonderful sponsors who've been with us year after year. Standout sponsors are Arizona Complete Health, Banner University Health Plan, Camp Wellness, part of University of Arizona's Rise Health and Wellness Center, where I work, Project Future, Families Uplifted Through Recovery Education, Workforce Development Program at University of Arizona, and the Coyote Task Force. Undoubtedly, there are people who are hearing this broadcast who are living with mental illness or have a mental health challenge in their own lives or their families' lives. Do you have a friendly message, Kat, that you would like to send out to people listening to this program who are in that position? Oh, of course. You are valued. You're welcome at this event. You are welcome in so many spaces in Tucson that love you and support you and want to see you thrive in the community. If you're confused or uncertain about where to get started on a recovery journey, Arizona Palooza is a great opportunity in a low-pressure environment to learn about the various resources available to you or your family members, and in the meantime, have a little bit of fun. My guest was Kat Villaverde. The Arizona Palooza is Saturday, May 6th, from 8.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. in Reed Park. There's a link on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. With an infectious smile and a colorful palette of Mexican dishes, Pati Hinich has become one of the most popular chefs on PBS. Even though Hinich has received numerous accolades and recognition for her show and her books, she says the early days of her career were very challenging. Pati Hinich recently visited Tucson and took time to visit with Tony Paniagua. This is not your first time in Arizona, and I know you visit Sonora as well. Can you tell us about your previous visits? Yes, of course. Well, I think the first time I visited may have been when I was asked to be a keynote speaker for the Fresh Produce Association of Americas, and it was in Tubac, and I met so many producers that grow, you know, all the food that we eat, and it was just a window into Tucson and the Borderlands in general, which is a project that I'm really passionate about. And that actually comes up in your program, La Frontera with Patty Hinich, because you're covering nearly the 2,000-mile border between Mexico and the United States, right? Exactly. I actually covered the entire 1,951 miles, but I feel like I could come back, Tony, and really make 100 more episodes, because you know, me and my team, we continuously felt like every person we met, every story we considered came from like central casting or something. It was just so incredible. I mean, what a privilege it is to be able to connect with all these people and all these stories and really act as a microphone. And the more I do this kind of work, the more I want to get better at it. And at being a much more powerful microphone and just be there and let the people and the places and the stories with their agency, like just them, just shine. 
You mentioned challenges along the way to get you where you are. What are one or two that you would like to mention? Oh my gosh. <laughs> if you can we do it We need like briefly. 10 episodes here. I mean, having a Mexican um, have her own cooking show on mainstream media was more than I can share in a few hours. I mean, people were worried about the accent. I was pitched to many networks and, and people were very worried about, are people going to understand her accent? And is Mexican food too ethnic and too niche and too narrow? And I got offered many times to go and do and have a cooking show as long as it wasn't Mexican, as long as it was international, and as long as I was willing to take classes to erase my accent. And I was willing to do neither or none or, you know, and I, I stood my ground and I wanted to have a Mexican cooking show. And I found PBS to be my home where I could do the authentic content that I wanted and where in a very unprecedented way, you had a Mexican in the U.S., doing Mexican food and increasingly when I'm in Mexico I mean now it's like completely bilingual as well when I'm in Mexico I'm talking in Spanish to people I'm not translating for anybody I mean of course as you know in public TV you also have to bring the funders and the sponsors and the people who believe in the content not for advertising, but because they believe that the content is worthy for humanity. Mexico is your country. It is your love. One of many, I'm sure. But you are also of uh, Central European background and Jewish. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about Patty and who she is? Absolutely. And that is a reason why I feel so at home in the borderlands, because I feel like we're all a kaleidoscope of sorts. And I come from a long line of fleeing immigrants. So my grandparents made Mexico their home during dif uh, different historical era. So on my father's side, my Polish grandfather was fleeing the pogroms at the turn of the 20th century, so very early 1900s. And he was fleeing that from Poland. And on my mother's side, it was my grandmother from Austria and my grandfather from the Czech Republic. And they were fleeing the Second World War. And they made Mexico their home and grew roots. And I feel it's that gratitude that they felt and that then their kids felt and then their grandkids felt and then it was passed on to me, which made me want to dedicate my life to help strengthen democratic institutions and help strengthen the civic culture. And that's why I wanted to be an academic. And then I find myself moving to the U.S. with my husband, feeling, you know, so Mexican, feeling missing Mexico so much. And as I started spending more years in the U.S. and then my kids are born in the U.S., Mexican-American, I'm like, wait, I'm already a Mexican Jew and then now I'm American the fact is that we're made to feel like we have to choose one thing. What are you? The thing is, you can be Mexican and American and love both countries so much. So I feel like the passion, in a way, is much more intense. The mission is really powerful, and we take no opportunity for granted. And it's been a long journey, and I feel like we're in such a different place now. And Mexican 
food and culture and language have become a part of the American cultural and culinary lingo. And it's a beautiful thing. I think it takes nothing from the U.S. as we know it, but it enriches the U.S. even more. A couple of my co-workers had a question about your books. You've written three very successful books. How do you decide which recipes go into each book? And what about the length of the book? Yeah, those are such great questions. I mean, I really try to include in every one of my cookbooks um, recipes that will become heirlooms in someone's family that are foolproof. I test them to no end so that there will be no fail if you make the recipe, but also that it's accessible and it's easy to make. And I look for dishes that have a DNA that speaks of a place and a people and a story. And it's homestyle food, not like modernist or molecular. It's food. Like my number one thing is, is it food that you want to dive into the plate for? Over the past few years, you've received multiple awards and accolades. In 2014, you cooked for then-President Barack Obama. So here it is, an immigrant from Mexico cooking for the President of the United States. It was truly unbelievable and even more because as me and the other cooks that were in the kitchen walked into the White House, the Obamas had a way of making you feel that they were there just for a moment, but that this was the home of the entire country. And you felt that. And also, as you know, the Obama's favorite food is Mexican food. And they loved everything. And President Obama went around the room and cracked a joke with every cook. And he knew about every cook. And when he came to me, he said, I am so proud about what you are doing for Mexicans and Latinos in the U.S. And I will never forget that. And he pronounced my name right. Hinish. Because that doesn't happen really in the U.S. It was truly incredible. And I always say that I don't know which is my proudest moment if cooking for the Obamas at the White House or cooking for Elmo and the Cookie Monster. Like the two of them were for me like, okay, I'm done. Life, thank you. Um, If I could combine the two, then that would be a dream. Tony Paniagua talked with Patti Hinich about her recent visit to Tucson. You can catch up with all the episodes of Patti's Mexican Table and La Frontera using AZPM Passport. And you can expect new episodes on PBS 6 this fall. Each year, local film fans get a sneak peek at the future of cinema with I Dream in Widescreen. It's a one-night-only film festival that highlights the best movies produced by graduating students from the University of Arizona's School of Theater, Film, and Television. This year, I met three young directors who each took very personal journeys in creating their thesis films. So my name is Hadas Barr. The film that I made is called The Art of Leaving Home. I'm from Los Angeles, California, and I'm a senior graduating out of the U of A. So what would you like to tell people about where your film came from and what you were most inspired by to make this particular kind of film? My biggest inspiration for this film is the films that I enjoy. 
um, specifically dramas with really comedic aspects like Lady Bird and coming-of-age films that I've just really related to in the past few years. Um, so when I started working on the script for The Art of Leaving Home, it started not as what it is now. It started just about this girl who went to work and lived her life, and it was incredibly boring. And I was thinking, well, the best thing I can do is put myself in the movie, write what you know. So I, I wrote about my family and my Jewish background, my culture, my community, and I hoped that people would relate to it in whatever way they could. And as I've heard from a few people, they have. <laughs> what was one of the biggest challenges that you think you faced in bringing this story to life? The biggest thing for me was I had a lot of guilt while writing this, um, not about writing about my family or my story, just that I felt like I had to be this Jewish spokesperson because um, there's not that many Jewish coming-of-age stories. Um, and I felt like if I didn't make it so that every Jewish person who watched this movie related to it and felt seen and felt acknowledged and portrayed correctly, I'd be doing a disservice to my community. So I needed to overcome that guilt. And then with that, I noticed that I can only share my story and my experience. I'm not some perfect statue of a Jewish coming-of-age girl. How rude is that? But isn't she coming next week? But that is not the point. Family is everything. She has a life, Rams. What kind of a life? Without her family? I think that's that snap talk getting to her. Snap talk? You know, there's a lot of dangerous information on the internet these days. Your Uncle Lenny once told me that olives have toxic ingredients. Lenny hasn't eaten a vegetable in 20 years. Why are we listening to Lenny? Lenny's a very smart man. He writes news articles. He writes posts on Facebook. Yeah, but he gets many of those likes. I'm Miles Gordon. I'm the director of The Rematch, and I'm from Chandler, Arizona. I think one of the real strengths of your short is the editing. The use of handheld camera really getting in there close, putting you in the ring. Why the inspiration to use boxing as the, the crux of the story, as your mechanism mm -hmm. for telling the tale? I knew I wanted to do a sports action film. Uh, and so I was really pushed by my peers and my professor, Professor Mulcahy at the time, to really pick something that was personal to me. When I was 12 years old, that's when my older brother started training me on how to box. And that's when I started pursuing it throughout high school. So um, as a filmmaker now, I was like, okay, I don't know any sport as good as I know that. So let's do that. And so that's, I just took it and ran. Pretty much throughout the story, we're following a character who has to make a decision for himself, either deal with the trauma that he's gained from a previous loss or just leave behind his life in the ring. And he has that decision to make. And so with the ending, it's kind of like that's still, that problem still lies. It's a hard thing for a teenager to answer. That's the character himself is still in his teenage years. So personally, I found it hard to make that decision for myself. Who knows if there's a time where the character might fall off again and might have to find that strength and courage to get back in the ring again. But for the time being, that's where we find them. And in directing your two main characters, who you have a younger man and you mm -hmm. have a, uh, his grandfather, what would you say is a lesson you learned as a director? Mm -hmm. Our first um, casting rehearsal, we sat down um, in a studio and we just talked before we did anything. We talked for about an hour about our relationship to the sport, about how we got introduced to the sport. And a lot of that naturally it ends up 
having us all dive into our relatives. So um, my brother, their fathers or mothers or, you know, relatives. So um, we got really personal and how and then it gave me something to jump into in terms of, okay, so how do you think you would feel at this point when this when X, Y or Z happens? And that's when I noticed Israel started to connect with it. When we talk about the story, he said there's a lot of things from what he told me that he connected with. So it was still a challenge, but it made it easy in a way uh, for me to really understand where he came from and connect. Yeah, so it was really just talking it out and getting to know each other that did it. Come on, give it up. Hey. Why you stop? I, I just, I need a break. Well, you know, I know, I know the fight was difficult for you. I know you had a heart. Pops! Last fight, I got my ass handed to me. And now I'm here, it's just gonna get harder from here. Where are you going? I'm going to bed. I got fighters to train. I'm not gonna give you an out. You're not gonna make a decision to quit, it's on you. It's not on me. You gotta make a decision here, grandson, about what you want. Hello, my name is Ryan Ramsey. I'm from Los Angeles, California, specifically Rancho Palos Verdes, <laughs> and um, my film is Deserted. So Ryan, you chose a tale that uh, pays off in some visceral thrills. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I think I see a little bit of Sam Raimi influence going on there. Mm -hmm. But you tell me, what motivated you to create the piece you did in Deserted? I've always kind of had a passion for uh, kind of creating just kind of content that I haven't necessarily seen in my short life uh, as a filmmaker. <laughs> I pretty much have always loved comedy films. That's been one of my one of my passions. I've always loved watching them. I love to giggle at something, mm -hmm. but then I also like the seriousness of horror. Um, I just think that like the edge of your seat thrill that you get from a horror film is something that's unmatched. And I think I just kind of wanted to combine both of those together to see if I could make a story that was that could work. You also have a tale of of loss in there, and it made me think about the decision for your climber character to go to this cliff and take his friend's ashes. So it made me think about how different people are inspired by or are motivated, maybe is a better word, by loss in their lives. So why was it important to you to include that theme in your film? This actually pulls uh, kind of deep into my heart. Um, so one of my friends passed away two years ago. He was a super amazing person and I never got the chance to say goodbye. And I guess me through this film, I wanted to kind of have the opportunity to kind of say goodbye to him in a certain way. Um, he was, uh, he loved film as well. He was in the social media space and I thought the best way to kind of make a tribute to him was through my film. Um, so the character's name is Anthony and that was my friend, Anthony Barajas. What was one of the biggest challenges that you faced in bringing this to life? I think one of the biggest challenges was uh, actually shooting it. Um, during production, that was quite arduous. Uh, we had four different locations that we shot on, and I was very, very worried about continuity. Uh, continuity is obviously very, very important, um, but given all of these sceneries that we had to do, I was not sure if it was going to be possible to do, as well as shooting on the side of a cliff. That was something that I was not too sure was going to actually work out the way I wanted it to, and I think we got it to look quite amazing. Hey, guys! <laughs> this is update number 24 on the road. Uh, just came out here and ended up getting a little lost, but uh, it's all good because I got my primal instinct. <laughs> uh, 
Still haven't heard back from my parents, so I'm assuming this whole getting kicked out of the house thing is like a permanent thing, but it's all good because they're kind of getting on my nerves anyway and going against my Kimosabe code. <laughs> so I'm better off without them. Hello? Someone there? The University of Arizona School of Theater, Film, and Television presents I Dream in Widescreen, the 2023 showcase of BFA student films, on Saturday, May 6th at 7 p.m. at the Fox Tucson Theater. Don't Go Swimming at 3 a.m. by Milo, a kindergartner at Sam Hughes Elementary, is a cautionary adventure of epic proportions. Milo is stories that soar youngest writer yet to have a story produced for radio, and he reminds us all how an unencumbered imagination can be the perfect laboratory for storytelling. Let me tell you a story of why you don't go swimming at 3 a.m. Milo was going in the pool. Her mama splashed off the diving board. Come on, it's your turn. Mm-mm. But Milo was too little. Then he heard a heartbeat coming from the water. Then the pool turned black. Look! Milo saw two ghosts. He screamed. Ah! The pool turned green and started to glow. Milo splashed out of the pool and screamed. He scrambled through the whole patio. Mama, Mommy, this way! Then Milo, Mommy, and Mama heard a boom! <coughs> At 4 a.m., a hundred ghosts started swimming in the pool. This way, I see a boat! Milo, Mommy, and Mama got in a boat and rowed away over a lake. Suddenly, there was a tsunami that crashed into the pool. A truck flew into the air. At 5 a.m., a volcano erupted. Aaron put out a fire in the house, and Milo had on a firefighter suit, ready to help. Lava flowed into the lake, and the ghost had to go back to ghost land. From North America, Milo said, <gasps> All the way to the Milky Way! And that's why you don't go swimming at 3 a.m. The end. That story was written by Milo, a kindergartner at Sam Hughes Elementary. 
Go Huskies! It was read by Corbin Bologna, a 10-year-old guest artist in the Literacy Connects Youth Center. Student writers can submit their own stories now through the Magic Box Story Portal. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.